Equip us through your word. Help us to see who you are. Uh, Help us to respond appropriately. This message we know from, from your mouth mediated through your prophet was not just for his day, but is a message for all of your people uh, until your son returns. And so help us this morning uh, to profit from it, feed us and strengthen us by its truth, and help us to give you great glory as we are given insight and understanding. Open our hearts as well as our minds, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, the reason I'm going to be glossing a little bit, uh, or a lot, actually, of chapters 46 through, uh, through 48, is that in that section, Isaiah is uh, cycling around themes that he's used before. Uh, he, he's not being redundant, but what he's doing is he's basically sh- holding up uh, the themes of uh, the usefulness of idol or the, the usefulness, the uselessness of idolatry. We have to be careful with what we put in the middle of use and nest sometimes. Uh, the uselessness of idolatry and uh, the necessity of trusting in God. Why? Uh, you're told in chapter 46, you're given the Babylonian gods, they're stooping, they're falling down, they're being borne by beasts of burden, they're being carried by these beasts of burden. What good is a God that you need to carry? Now, that's the question. And in verse 4, God says, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you, I have made you, and I will carry you. And so this contrast is you have these false gods that you are loading up on carts, being pulled by, do- by, by donkeys and oxen, and then you have God who's carrying His people from birth all the way to gray hair, from, from, from in the womb all the way to the grave. And that's the choice. Even the gods of the superpower of Babylon have to be carried in carts by donkeys. You will worship them, or you will worship the God who carries you. And then you move down a little bit into into verse 7. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. So here you have these people. Sometimes it's it's the donkeys that are drawing the the false gods behind in their carts. Sometimes it's the people themselves picking up their gods and putting them on their shoulder and carrying them away. In fact, in Jeremiah, you have a section where the Babylonians are coming in to destroy uh, the people of, of Jerusalem. And, and the prophet is saying, look, like, not only are your gods not helping you, they're positively a burden. You could run faster if you weren't trying to lug them around. You know, these gods, far from being your rescuer, are actually a liability. They're not an asset at all. Uh, who are you going to serve? The god that you need to use all of your resources to carry around? Or are you going to serve the god who carries you from, from womb to tomb? Are you going to serve the God who bears with you through all of your life? And we've seen that again and again in Isaiah up until now. And then God also, in verse 9, says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And again, we've seen this theme. How do you know? What's the test between the real God and a false God? The test that Isaiah lays down over and over and over again is the real God will tell you what's going to come because he's the one who accomplishes his purposes. 
When he tells the future, he is revealing his plan. And because he can accomplish his plan, he has absolute certain knowledge of what will be. It's not merely because in his eternality he stands outside of time. It's because what takes place in time is the unfolding of his eternal plan. And so he declares the end from the beginning because before he initiates the beginning, he already knows what he will accomplish in the end. That's how you know who the real God is. So you will either worship a God that you need to lug around, that you will make yourself. We saw this last week in that satirical section uh, where Isaiah, you know, sort of in parody, paints the, paints the person making the idol out of the tree that they cut down, half of which they used for their fire to bake their bread, the other half of which they, they fashioned into a God, fell down and said, you're my God, you made me. There's only one God. You will worship something, though. You've been made to be a worshiper. You will either worship the true God who carries you, or you will worship a false God that you will need to carry, and who in the end will bring about your destruction. So chapter 46 is about that contrast. Chapter 47 is about the fall of Babylon because they continue to exist in idolatry and sin. And chapter 48 is about Israel as Israel persists in idolatry and sin as well. So you basically have 46 sets up that contrast, idols and God. 47 is about how Babylon will fall because of their sin. 48 is how Jerusalem and Israel will fall because of their sin as well. We've seen many of these themes before, which is why we can move past them now with that mention. Chapter 49, though, brings us back to the servant of the Lord. You'll remember that in Isaiah, sometimes the servant is the nation of Israel. Sometimes, though, the servant, more often, the servant is an idealized Israel, all that Israel was supposed to be. So what Israel was supposed to be, the firstborn son of God, uh, the one who shows the glory of God to the nations through obedience, the one who makes the law of God look beautiful uh, because of obedience and the working out of all the blessings and, and all the rest. What Israel failed to do, that is being a light to the nations, the servant who is the epitome of all of the essence of Israel will accomplish. So in that sense, sometimes the servant is like the king. The king was the representative head of the nation. And so sometimes the servant of the Lord represents Israel like that king, like that covenant head. And here in this text, in chapter 49, one of the things that we find is that this servant has a ministry to Israel, to restore Israel, and therefore can't be Israel as a nation. Uh, If the servant has a ministry to the nation, it can't be the nation. There has to be some uh, differentiation in identity at that point. So what do we learn about the servant here? We've already seen some of the servant songs earlier. Here we have the servant, without introduction, speaking. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. We've mentioned this before, depending on translation, islands or coastlands is how in Isaiah you refer to the farthest reaches of the earth. So here you have the servant of the Lord speaking to the farthest reaches of the earth, the distant world, the distant nations, calling to the entire world. Hear this. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, you can combine this with Psalm 51, 
uh, Jeremiah 1, uh, Paul. The reality is, Psalm 139, the reality is in a very fitting way, uh, when we're reminded of the work the beginnings does this morning, the Bible teaches that personal identity begins in the womb, does not, does not await birth. Before birth, before I was born, the Lord already had a call on my life, the servant says. In fact, the greatest passage of this, of course, is in Luke chapter 1, where, where Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, uh, meets Mary for the first time when she's pregnant with Jesus, and filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, John the Baptist in the womb leaps for joy at the presence of the Messiah. This, this, is, this is neonatal worship. Uh, this, is, this is in utero prophecy. It's the most fascinating thing um, because we know the whole reason that John the Baptist is special is John the Baptist's whole ministry is to point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've been waiting for the Messiah. That's Him. And we tend to think that that first prophecy takes place at the baptism, but it doesn't. It takes place 30 years earlier before either one of them is even born. While I was in the womb, the servant said, he called my name. He knew who I was. He's spoken to me. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. That is, all of my words, my speech, my teaching, my proclamation is a sword in his hand. But he hid me in the shadow of his hand. That is, he concealed me until the right time. And then he brought me out like a polished arrow. In other words, the servant is a weapon in the hand of God hidden away, the arrow left in its quiver, you know, the, the sword in its sheath, you know, the, the, the gun with the safety on until just the right time when God says, now, now is the time. Now is the time when I will reveal you to the world and you will speak. Your mouth is a sword. And of course, you almost can't read this, you know, without thinking about how the Word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is more life-giving than bread. The mouth of Jesus is a weapon in the hand of God because, of course, the mouth of Jesus, the Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these servant passages. You are my servant. Notice what, he says, notice what he says in verse 3, though. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So there's an identification with Israel. Now, in verse 5, we'll see that he has a ministry to Israel. So this isn't the nation. This is the idolization, the idolization, not idol, idealization of all that Israel was supposed to be. It's the fulfillment of all that Israel is supposed to be in the sight of God. You are the one in whom I will display my splendor. All of my glory will be mediated through the world through their engagement with you. But look at verse 4. So this is the task. You are a weapon prepared in the hand of God. I've hidden you away until just the right time. I know you by name. I have a plan for you. I've called you even before you were born. But the servant says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. The reality is, if you look at the ministry of Jesus when he was on earth, as much as we sort of read the highlights, 
the healings, the miracles. One of the things that I don't think we do very well is enter into the horror of the relentless opposition and rejection that Jesus faced over and over and over again. So even when he performs miracles, how many people in the crowd understand the message that he's preaching? Even when he, when he performs miracles, how many people will repent and actually turn to God versus just want the free lunch or, or the free health care? They'll crucify him. They'll revile him. His, his hand-picked closest circle will betray and abandon him and deny him. What does he gain through all of his labor? I've spent my strength for nothing at all. When he goes to the cross, rejected, despised, it's almost like there's nothing there. The whole ministry seems to have crumbled into nothingness as everything falls apart. Yet, what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Even the servant of the Lord must learn not to judge by sight. You commit yourself to God. You commit your life to God. You commit your ministry to God. You commit everything you have ever tried to accomplish and do to God, because on some days it will seem like it's all falling apart. Some days it will seem like all of the labor, all of the years, all of the hours is going to end up accomplishing for good in this world precisely nothing. And that's when you say, whatever is due me is in the Lord's hands. My reward is with my God. That low ebb, though, is not the last word, because now the Lord says, Reminder, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, God made Christ in terms of the incarnation. He was designed for this. He was designed to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. This is that verse where you know the, the, the real Israel isn't the nation of Israel. The real Israel is the one who gathers the nation of Israel back to God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And look at verse 4. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Oh, you go through those times. Some of us, depending on personality, depending on circumstances, go through protracted times of feeling that, feeling it poignantly and deeply. But who's your strength? It's God. God has been my strength. And He says, what does God say? The servant says, I look around, I've labored for nothing. God says, it's too small a thing. For you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This, verse 6, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is not good enough for the servant of the Lord to only be the restorer of one nation. Now, being the restorer of one nation is probably somewhat more significant than what a lot of us are accomplishing in our lives. Uh, if I could be the, the savior of an entire nation, 
that would be like 10% more important than what I'm doing right now. You know, that would be an incredible thing. And, and yet here is the servant. He's going to restore the covenant people of God. And he's like, God looks at this and he sees all of these people, all of this history, all of this covenant relationship, this, this, this nation. And he says, you know what? When I look at this, this is, this is paltry. This is, this is small potatoes. You know what? For you, not because the people deserve it, but for what you deserve as my servant, it's way too small a thing. It's too insignificant. It's not nearly big enough for you to be the one who just brings one nation back. You're going to be a light to every nation. You're the light of the world. You will be the redeemer and savior of the entire world because that's what you deserve. That's your quality. That's your merit. You are my servant. It is too small a thing. It's not big enough for you to the savior of Israel alone. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. That is, you will be rejected and despised and abhorred by the very people you are saving. And where do you see fulfillment in that? To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down. He says to my servant, you're going to be despised and rejected, but I am going to exalt you in such a way that royalty will recognize that you are the king of kings. Not only in the superlative, that is in the highest sense, you are the king of kings, but you are also literally the king of kings. All royalty will bow before you one day. Everyone will, will prostrate themselves before you. You are my servant, despised, abhorred, rejected, but I will exalt you. You are the Savior of the world. Then he goes on in verse 8 and following, that you are the covenant of the people, that is every single covenant blessing we could ever have is found in Jesus Christ. The only way that there's blessing comes through this servant. Uh, we've seen this sort of picturesque language before about how he's going to take the desert experience, uh, the wilderness experience that, that Israel has out of the exile in Egypt. That's sort of the imagery, the background imagery. And he's going to take this image, uh, this desert experience and he's going to transform it so that, the, so that the water is going to be poured out. Uh, living water is going to flow in the desert. He's going to feed his people. He's going to clothe his people. He's going to make sure that they're not dying of thirst. He'll have compassion on them. He's going to gather them together. In verse 13, we've seen this again last week, that all of creation in merism, heaven and earth, meaning everything, is going to respond with joy. Why? Because the Lord is comforting his people. How? He saved them through the work of his servant. And because the servant has restored Israel and the servant is a light to all of the Gentiles, the servant is the savior of the world. The world itself praises God. Everything in heaven and on earth rejoices because the Lord is comforting His people. And then another image, which is helpful today uh, with our reminder of what's going on with beginnings, is that Zion, the people of God, says, wait a minute, God's forgotten me. God's changed His mind. The Lord says, no, no, no. A mother nursing her child can forget her child faster than I can forget you. The, most, the, the, the image of the most uh, tender love, 
tender maternal love and bond pales into insignificance compared to how God loves his people. Far more tenderly. Bonded far more tightly. No, the, the, the mother may forget her child, but God will never forget his children. In fact, their names are written on the palms of his hands. Not just, not just distract, distracted daydream doodling, but tattooed, permanently inked, engraved, cut into. It'll never fade. Your name is engraved on the palm of God. Obviously a metaphor. God's not corporeal. We understand that. But it's like whenever God looks at his hands, he sees your name. How can he ever forget you? How will he ever forget you? He's seeing your name all the time. He, he is the one who's engraved it. He's chiseled it into his hand. He will never forget you. He has no intention of forgetting you. He doesn't want to forget you. Your name is written on his hand. And at this point, this isn't what Isaiah is saying, but it's impossible for us probably this side of the cross to not consider the, the wounds in the hands of Jesus, engraving his love for us for all time. This is how much he loves us, that he's willing to suffer and die for us on the cross. God, the rest of the chapter talks about bringing back the people from exile. He's going to gather them together. Verse 23, kings will be your foster fathers and queens, your nursing mothers. They'll bow down before you with faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. This means that God is going to treat his children so well that the most important people in the world will take care of them. Kings don't tend to, in the ancient world, kings didn't tend to think it was worth their time to be a foster father. But that's precisely what God will do for his children. Queens did not nurse their children. They sent them out to wet nurses, even if they were their own children. Oh, queens will be your nurses. Kings will be your foster fathers. They will lie down in the dust. This does not mean abject servility. What it means is that they will do anything they can for you. They will be your servant. Anything at all that you need, they will be happy to provide for you. They will not rule over you. They will rule for you. This is what the servant is going to do for his people, all of his people, all around the world. The question is how. How is the servant going to do all of this? You'll get the ultimate culminating answer in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which we'll look at next week. But you get a glimpse of it in chapter 50. How is it that the servant is going to accomplish all of these things? Chapter 50, verse 4 says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue. There's a discipled tongue. I know what to say. To know the word that sustains the weary. Remember in uh, the beginning of chapter 49, we're told, that he, my, he has made my mouth a sharpened sword. Here, again, the emphasis is on words. Words are powerful things. The Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue, so I know how to speak to someone. Uh, the servant knows how to touch someone with his words. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And, and so the servant is being woken every morning. Uh, to listen to God. 
The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. So here you have this composite picture of the servant is someone who can teach others. He listens to God. That's why he can teach others, because he listens to God, and he hasn't been rebellious. He hasn't rebelled against God. He hasn't sinned against God. He hasn't turned away from God. He listens and he instructs other people. He knows how to use his words to bless. And so what do you expect will happen to the servant? You expect that someone who, who listens to God, isn't rebellious, and blesses other people will, will be accepted, will be honored, will be blessed, something along those lines. Verse 6, or verse 5, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And this verse falls like a bombshell into the context. What? The servant of the Lord, listening to God, blessing others. Who are these people who are beating him? Who are these people who are, who are pulling out his beard? Who are these people who are mocking and spitting him? Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. So what you see here is that the servant who listens to God and speaks for God is going to be rejected by people in horrible ways. But God will sustain him. God will strengthen him. God will be the one who, in the end, vindicates him from every charge and accusation and slander. He will not ultimately be condemned because the Lord God will liberate him and vindicate him. And this is that contrast. You almost can't believe it's true until you read the Gospels. How can someone this wonderful in the sight of God be treated this way by human beings. The, it's so radically discordant. But the, the, but the juxtaposition of this almost creates a mystery. It's unfathomable until you come to the Gospels. Then you see how it works out, but it's still unfathomable that people would treat Jesus this way. So what's the response? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. In other words, here's, here's the offer. Again, a God who carries you or gods you will carry. The one who is the light to the world or torches of your own devising. You will either walk in the light of God in life, or you will try to walk in light of your own creation, which is really darkness and which will lead you to destruction. Those are the choices. But it's too small a thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of Israel only. And for those of us today, we have to be awfully thankful of that. We have to be awfully thankful that it was too small a thing for Jesus to be the Savior just of people of his own ethnicity or just of people in the first century. 
Jesus is the Savior of Canadians, for goodness sakes, of all of the nations. The servant of the Lord suffered to pay for the sins of Canadians as much as any other people on the face of the earth. Well, this is what the servant has done. This is the work of the servant on our behalf. I trust that God will help us because really, at the end of the day, if you really want to know how you ought to live your life, you really need to know what God has done for you. You know, so often we just want short, clever, moral lessons. Practical ways just to go out and do good. And that's all very important. But the reality is we'll never have the motivation or the groundwork to do good unless we know what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. Just knowing what Jesus has been willing to do for us, what God has called him to do, what he has accomplished on our behalf, the plan of God that revolves around the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's essential. You'll never understand life. You'll never understand what you are to do in your life unless you understand who Jesus Christ is and what God has given him to do. So may God help us. Uh, more clearly, uh, perhaps, uh, than we have before, underst- understand uh, Jesus, the servant of the Lord. I'm going to ask our musicians. So, Father, we would ask that uh, for your son's sake, you would help us to live in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you, following you, and may we represent your son well in this world of which he is the Savior. Be with us, we pray. Send us out with your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in grace and peace.